Hello, and thank you for listening to today's episode of JTCast, the official podcast of the Journal of Athletic Training. I'm your host, Luke Donovan. On today's podcast, I will be summarizing a recent article published online in the Journal of Athletic Training with the goal of providing you with novel information that may impact your clinical practice. After the summary, we will be joined by Dr. Monica Leininger to discuss her latest works regarding improving concussion reporting behavior in NCAA Division I football players. All papers we will be discussing today can be found on the JAT website, and please remember that all content from JAT is open access to all readers thanks to the funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. Let's survey the scene. Sport-related concussions are one of the most common forms of traumatic brain injury observed in sports. Overall, concussions account for around 5% of all injuries reported within the NCAA. As literature continues to emerge about the long-term consequences of concussions, the necessity for proper diagnosis and treatment is becoming more and more evident. Today's podcast will explore both the treatment and diagnosis side of sport-related concussions. First, I will summarize the results of a randomized clinical trial that examined the effects of a novel aerobic intervention on healthy individuals. Second, we will be joined by Dr. Leninger to discuss strategies to improve concussion reporting behaviors that go beyond individual level factors. The first article is titled, Randomized Control Trial Evaluating Aerobic Training and Common Sport-Related Concussion Outcomes in Healthy Participants. This article is by Dr. Elizabeth Teal and colleagues from McGill University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Duke University. Every few years following the International Conference of Concussion and Sport, a consensus statement is produced that provides recommendations on the best strategies for managing sport-related concussion. These statements traditionally include recommendations for both the diagnosis, treatment, and return to sport for patients with concussions. In 2013, it was recommended that patients with concussion should refrain from physical and cognitive activity until symptom resolution. Studies following the 2013 consensus statement all in all found that this strategy resulted in concussion-related deficits to be resolved within about 7 to 10 days in the majority of patients. However, a meaningful number of patients demonstrated persistent deficits lasting weeks or even months after the injury. Stemming from these studies, the latest consensus statement published in 2017 began to shift the treatment strategies away from limiting physical and cognitive activity and instead promoted an active recovery to mitigate persistent symptoms and dysfunction following concussions. Previous studies have found mixed results following a single aerobic exercise bout in patients with concussion, where some studies found increases in symptoms while others noted declines in emotional and cognitive symptoms post-exercise. Studies that examine sustained aerobic exercise following concussions are more uniform in their results, where investigators primarily found decreased symptom scores following training. However, the majority of these studies were limited to one recovery domain of concussions, being symptoms. Prior to determining the effects of aerobic training across all domains of concussion, it is critical to identify how clinical assessments within healthy participants are impacted. Therefore, the authors state that the purpose of the study was to determine how an aerobic exercise program designed for acute sport-related concussion rehabilitation affected clinical concussion metrics in a healthy collegiate population. Now let's discuss the methods used within this study. 
40 participants between the ages of 18 and 30 were recruited and participated in the study. Participants were randomized into one of two groups, the acute concussion therapy intervention, known as the active group, or a non-intervention group. Participants had clinical concussion metrics and their VO2 max accessed at two sessions separated by 14 days. The following clinical concussion tests were completed in a counterbalance order prior to the maximum cycling test. The first test was the CNS Vital Signs, which is a test that's comprised of 30-minute computerized neurocognitive assessment that quantifies attention span, working memory, response variability, problem solving, and reaction time. The next test was the Standardized Assessment of Concussion, also known as the SAC which is a five minute sideline evaluation that tests orientation, immediate and delayed memory and concentration. After the SAC test, the balance air scoring system, a test that evaluates static balance during three standing positions on two different sport surfaces was completed. Next, the graded symptom checklist. The graded symptom checklist is a list of 27 common symptoms that may be experienced after concussion. And the final test that was completed was the vestibular ocular motor screening, which is a five minute visual assessment. Between the sessions, the active group completed aerobic training while the non-intervention group completed no training. The active group completed six 30 minute progressive training sessions using a stationary bike. The progression was standardized over the course of the six sessions, where during the first sessions, participants cycled within 60% of his or her VO2 max and ultimately cycled at 80% of their VO2 max by the sixth session. The results of the study are as follows. There were no differences in baseline characteristics between the two groups. The active group had an improvement for total symptom score between test sessions. Cognitive flexibility, executive functioning, reasoning, and total symptom score outcomes were better but composite memory, verbal memory, and near-point convergence distance scores were worse at the second session. However, few changes exceeded the 80% reliable change indices calculated for this study, and effect sizes were generally small to negligible. Therefore, from a statistical perspective, yes, aerobic training did cause some changes to clinical assessments. However, from a clinical relevancy standpoint, these changes were not meaningful. Therefore, following in an aerobic training intervention, clinicians should attribute changes to clinical concussion tests over a two-week period to a true change and not as a product of the aerobic training intervention, meaning the scores do not need to be adjusted to factor in normal influences of aerobic training. The authors do conclude by stating, improvements in clinical concussion outcomes as concussed patients undergoing exercise therapy may not be a byproduct of increased physical activity alone. It must be due to other factors, which should be further explored in future studies. Now I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Monica Leininger from Northern Arizona University, who recently authored a paper titled, Improving Concussion Reporting Behavior in National Collegiate Athletic Association Division I Football Players, Evidence for the Applicability of the Socioeconomic Model for Athletic Trainers, which can be found at jtjournals.org. Hi, Dr. Leininger, and welcome to JATCast. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, I'd be happy to. My name is Monica Leininger, and I'm an assistant professor at Northern Arizona University in the athletic training graduate program, and I've been here for about five years um, following a postdoc fellowship at Western Michigan University. And I completed my PhD in measurement and research after completing my undergraduate degree and my master's in athletic training. And the reason that I chose to do my PhD like I did is that after spending many years in the clinical setting, I felt like uh, athletic trainers had great ideas for research, but maybe didn't have the training to actually implement the appropriate study design, measurement, or different statistical techniques. Can you provide a brief background and summary of your latest work on improving concussion reported behavior in NCAA Division I football players? Sure, absolutely. So with my colleagues, uh, another athletic trainer, Dr. Debbie Craig, she's here at NAU as well, and then two psychological science faculty members, Ann Huffman and Heidi Wayment, uh, we interviewed 26 various stakeholders at Division I football programs on their perceptions of concussion reporting behaviors of the student athletes. These included athletic directors, coaches, and athletic trainers who interacted directly with the student athletes of the football program. We then implemented a common psychological framework for human development called the socio-ecological model. And I'll have to be honest with you that I can't say that I exactly learned that when I was going to school to become an athletic trainer, but that's why interdisciplinary work is so important. Do you mind if I take a minute to describe the SEM for the listeners? Well, absolutely. I think a lot of us haven't learned about that in our athletic training uh, background, so that'll be a, a great addition. So it's basically a five-level model with the first level focused on the individual themselves. So in essence, it's the change in an individual, and it's not isolated to that person themselves. So we take into account our environmental factors, different levels that may influence the individual. So at the core is the individual themselves. And so this, when we talk specifically about concussion reporting, what we are talking about the football player's thoughts, their feelings, or their behaviors. And so some of these examples might be knowledge, attitudes, or perceived norms, also perceived control, and then the self-efficacy to report a possible sport-related concussion. So then as we move out one level to what's called the microsystem, this is where the football players live, work, play. Um, you can also think of this as individuals that are within those settings. So coaches, athletic trainers, teammates, parents, friends. And so some of these examples might be the thoughts, feelings, or behaviors of different individuals within those settings. So the norms that the people related to the individual think about. Then there's the mesosystem, which is the relationship that connects these first two levels together. So how do coaches and athletic trainers interact with one another? Then as we move one more level out, it's called the exosystem. And this is the indirect environments um, that in, are influenced by the macro system, which we're going to talk about the macro system in just a second. It's the most, um, it's the furthest outside from the individual. And so that macro system factors, those could be things like 
the university's level support for the sports medicine staff. It could also be creating safe playing environments. And then uh, most importantly, especially with this article, is the implementation and enforcement of concussion policies. And then as I referred to the macro system, this is the broadest term, the one furthest away from the individual. And those are attitudes, values from a broader culture perspective. So you might think of this like football as being a beloved American sport or the influence that the media plays on sports and concussion reporting, NCAA concussion legislation, or um, state policies as well. So that's a brief <laughs> summary of the SEM. What made you develop and execute this project? So we were funded, the four of us were funded by the Department of Defense and the NCAA as part of the Mind Matters Challenge to investigate concussion reporting behaviors. I know that uh, Jillian Schmidt from the University of Georgia has been on one of these podcasts as well, and she did a great job discussing that. But these research projects are working to determine the culture of concussion reporting and make improvements. And so we know that presenting just traditional signs and symptoms of sports-related concussions at the beginning of the season is not working. And so specifically back to this project using the SEM, we were trying to think outside of the box, and that's why the interdisciplinary work was so valuable. Can you describe the data collection process for the listeners? Sure, absolutely. So I'm gonna take a minute to describe the larger project, the Mind Matters project that I just referred to, and then I'll be specific to this manuscript that we're discussing today. But we visited four different schools on five different occasions. And during the first visit, we spent nearly five days at each site performing what's called a cultural analysis. And so we viewed practices, games, locker rooms, athletic training rooms, coaches' offices, weight rooms. We also had the student athletes complete a questionnaire about their beliefs, attitudes, and norms associated with concussion reporting. So to be able to understand what the culture is, you basically have to somewhat live it. And that's why we spent about five days at each of the sites. And then through a modified community-based participatory research approach, we went back to visit two, and we met with all the program stakeholders, and we created site-specific strategies that were used to improve concussion reporting behavior from all that data that we gathered in visit one. And then in visit three, this was right before the 2017 football season, we met with the student athletes and they completed a preseason questionnaire. And then we ensured that the strategies were ready to be implemented for that football season. Following that, we returned for the fourth visit and we met with the student athletes again for a postseason questionnaire administration. And then finally, uh, just this past summer in 2018, we wrapped up the data collection. We went back to each school and we provided site level and overall group level results. So for this paper that we're discussing specifically today, those data came from the data collection in the first visit. Were there any key limitations that the listeners should uh, know about? Sure, I think that uh, a key limitation would be the fact that we asked coaches, athletic directors, and athletic trainers about their perceptions of student athletes concussion reporting. So 
we weren't able to ask the student athlete themselves because they don't exactly come forward and disclose they have a concussion. That's why we're here today. But because of that, we went to the best proxy that we could. So I think that that would be one limitation that I wanna be transparent about. And another limitation is that our stakeholders were from four different schools. Um, so two FCS and two FBS schools. So the generalizability might be a little bit limited because they were division one schools. And then also the fact that there were only four schools that we used. What do you think was the most important findings of this paper? Well, the most frequently discussed portion of the SEM in this paper were the individual level factors, which again, that's not necessarily so surprising. So um, individuals talked most about student athletes knowledge, attitudes, perceived control, their perceived norms that they have. But it was real interesting that many of the stakeholders felt that future brain health was becoming more important to the student athlete than previous years that they've seen being a part of the football program. Um, I would also say that the exosystem level, so this would be support for the medical staff, safe playing environments, and then the implementation and revisions of enforcing concussion safety policies, uh, that was the most, that was the second most commonly discussed level of the SEM. And so that was encouraging to see as well. So people important to these student athletes are realizing that more needs to be done to change this culture than to just focus on the individual level factors themselves. From a macro system perspective, media is included with the model. Given that the NCAA D1 football has a large media presence and therefore generates a lot of discussion around sport-related concussion, what advice do you have for educating stakeholders involved with sports that do not have the same media outlet, but still have high rates of sport-related concussion, such as youth soccer? That's really a great question. I think we're trying to change culture, which is a monumental challenge, but can be done working with one athlete and one sport at a time. So this macro system perspective also includes league level legislation and state um, concussion policies. So those athletic trainers working with youth soccer will still have some form of a global level policy pertaining to sport-related concussions. So I would encourage these athletic trainers to make sure that they're involved in the decision-making process. I would also say that while Division I football does have a large media presence, in today's society, most sports have media coverage. So our young athletes are watching who they dream to become on TV. So when they see someone sustain a concussive type of a hit and then be evaluated properly, they are learning from these strategies. What were the most surprising findings and where do you see these results leading for future projects? I was surprised most that stakeholders are truly guided by education. And I don't mean that they're only hearing the signs and symptoms that we might present at the beginning of a season, but they truly are listening to what the athletic trainer has to say. We found that very apparent in the results from these interviews. So the coaches and the athletic directors are listening. And the, the problem is though, that most of the education is taking place at the individual level. So I keep coming back to the signs and symptoms. So this can be for many reasons. It could be that it's the easiest to implement it makes the most sense because again, us as athletic trainers are taught to 
help educate the student athlete about um, the concerns that you have while playing with a possible concussion. So I think what we need to do is start developing educational interventions at the micro and mesosystem level. So this might be something like using the brotherhood mentality in football. And so encouraging teammates to speak up when they think that their brother isn't acting how he normally does. Uh, also involving the coaches in a very thorough education process. And this may not be the same that the student athletes receive. And then I think at the youth and adolescent level, having parents complete some form of a training as well will help to eventually change this culture. Generally speaking, what is your next big question? I would say still along the same path, uh, how do we change culture when all participants may not want to actually change that culture? So I've really learned through these past three years that implicit messages are just as loud as explicit messages. So meaning that even when a stakeholder, for example, a coach says that they support concussion reporting, if their implicit attitudes don't suggest that, it's still being heard as a negative influence to the student athlete. Thank you for taking the time to answer my questions about your most recent work published in the Journal of Athletic Training. Well, that's it for today's JAT cast. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast, which is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, and Stitcher. You can find out more information about upcoming podcasts and other JAT events on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts at JAT underscore NATA. Thank you for listening and keep a lookout for next month's JAT cast.